Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, we've been uh, looking through the letter of 1 Peter for some time now. We took a little pause for, uh, for our Christmas season, but came back to it. And, and what we've seen in the, the most recent sections is that God's people are to live a life that is distinct, particularly as they seek to demonstrate their faith in God in all of their relationships, whether their relationships to their spouses, to their children, to their masters, or to their, those who answer to them, their, their slaves or their uh, employees. And we saw last time, when we live those distinct lives, when we live in a way that is unique, it will often lead to suffering. And yet we must endure that suffering as God's people. When people of the world suffer, they seek to strike back. They seek to get their vengeance. They seek to do unto others what has been done unto them. But God calls us to a uniquely different life. He showed us that a bit last week as He reminded us that we are to accept that suffering meekly and we're to answer by pointing out the hope in which we stand, our hope of Christ. But in today's text, He shows us how Christ provides the example that we need and more than that, He provides the strength, He provides the hope, He provides the promises on which we stand that enable us and equip us to stand firm in the face of that suffering. So that's what we're going to see in the final verses of 1 Peter 3. But so that we can see that in context, we'll start reading at verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having, or being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's encouraging word. Beloved witnesses to the power of our God through Christ. The Christian life, as Peter has shown us, can be difficult. Now to be sure, our faith in Christ is oftentimes the only thing that makes life tolerable. When you're sick, faith is what gets you through as you look to the great physician. 
When a fierce storm is blowing in, it's such a comfort to know that we serve the God who controls the wind and the rain. When you grieve the death of a loved one, it's such a comfort to rest in Christ. So in some ways, our faith is what makes life in this world tolerable. But it also oftentimes complicates life. Our faith in Christ teaches us how life ought to be and is not. As Christians, we grieve the ugliness of this world in a way that non-Christians can't because they can't see what this world ought to be. It makes us despair almost, almost, of the sins that people wholeheartedly embrace even though those sins are destroying them. And also in ourselves, we can't wait for the sin that crowds our heart to be done with. We long to be perfected, to be delivered from all of this brokenness. That's hard, and that's just the inner struggle of the Christian life. But those inner struggles are compounded immensely by the opposition we receive outside from those who continue in their hatred toward God. Those who are outside of Christ, they they tend to dislike those who serve the Lord, in part because you irritate their conscience. You don't try to, but when they see how you're working hard to avoid the sins that still enslave them, and when they see how you're trying to cultivate love for God and for your neighbor, and when they see you pursuing forgiveness and selflessness and joy, when they see those things, it reminds them that they have chosen the opposite. And their hearts, their consciences know that they'll pay for that choice, that they'll have to answer to God for choosing bitterness rather than forgiveness. Hatred rather than love. Sourness rather than joy. And they hate the fact that you've shown them that, that you've forced them to reckon with that reality. They see Christ in you, growing in you. His love, His righteousness, His joy. And they hate Him. They hate Him because they know Him in their hearts as their judge. And so they hate you in whom they see Him. And that hatred tends to prompt folks to lash out against you. They'll slander you. They'll try to ruin your reputation. Make false accusations in order to make your life difficult. They'll try to hurt you. Attacking your work, sabotaging your friendships, doing all that they can to make life uncomfortable, to make you as miserable as they feel. And folks, it's hard to endure that. It's hard not to respond in kind. It's hard to love them and to testify to them of your hope instead of lashing out. But that's what we're called to do. In fact, that's why we're here. We're here to honor God by reflecting Him to a sinful world. We're here to shine the light of Christ to that world even though they hate us, even though they reject us. We're called to show them Christ and to love them and to call them to the love and the life and the joy that is found only in Christ. And folks, we are not strong enough or committed enough to do it. We're not. But thankfully, it's not up to us or the strength that we have. And that's what our text for this morning shows us. Here we see how God is the one who empowers us to respond rightly to the suffering of this world. God empowers us to respond rightly to suffering. That's our theme. And the 
the first part of that that he shows us in verse 18 is how he enlivens us through a crucifixion triumph. He enlivens us through a crucifixion triumph. Notice how this text starts. It starts with the word for. Kids, when you see for or because in especially the start of a Bible text, that's what's called a causal conjunction. It should lead you to read again what was just before it. Because that word is telling you that what you're about to read is explaining something that just came before. Okay? Well, verse 17 concluded that brief section we looked at last time that that talked about suffering as a Christian. That section that called us to recognize that suffering is oftentimes unavoidable for Christians. But it urged us to live in such a way that, that we don't deserve the suffering, that we haven't earned the suffering that we endure. Christians are called to live Christ-like lives of holiness, even if it causes suffering for us. And the explanation, the cause for our attitude is what we read at the start of this passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Jesus didn't deserve that suffering any more than we deserve or should deserve the suffering that we experience in this world. Sometimes we do deserve it, don't we kids? You suffer with a punishment from your parents because you disobeyed. But that's what he urged us not to do, right? Don't live in a way that you deserve the suffering you experience. Don't live in such a way as to earn the mistreatment of others. Live in a way that shows them the love and the holiness and the character of Christ. And if you suffer, then make your suffering to be like that of Christ who did not deserve the suffering, but he suffered for the sake of others. In fact, he suffered for us. Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus never sinned. He was entirely just and righteous and good in all of his ways. But he suffered for our sake so that we could be reconciled to God. That's exactly what had been foretold of Jesus, what he came to do. Isaiah 53 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Colossians 1 says, You who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works, He has now reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. So Jesus suffered all of that that He didn't deserve so that we could be reconciled, so that we could be brought to God. And folks, that is our first and deepest comfort in the face of the suffering that we endure. Suffering in this world is always temporary. The worst it can do. Young people remember this. The absolute worst that the suffering of this world can bring about to us is the death of our bodies. But because of Jesus' suffering for us, that death is not the end. And in fact, that death is not even bad news for us anymore because it doesn't usher us into punishment. It doesn't usher us into judgment. It ushers us into the loving presence of our Father. Jesus has reconciled us to God. All of the sins that we committed are gone. He paid for them on the cross. And so the very worst this world can do, the absolute worst of the suffering that this world can pour out on us, all it can do is bring us to God. 
with whom we have peace. And meanwhile, we have new life in Christ. Because true life involves communion with God. As long as we were in our sin, that was impossible. Because God is holy and we were not. And so all God could, could do as long as we were in our sin was punish us, condemn us. But since Jesus was condemned for us, that sin is gone and we're reconciled to God. That means we have new life. We have blessings that are eternal. Folks, greater motivation than this to endure suffering in this world is impossible to find. When we recognize, when we really wrestle with the fact that Jesus suffered for us so that we could live, so that we could have a relationship with God, so that we could be freed from that life of rebellion, when we recognize that, then suddenly suffering for the sake of Jesus becomes tolerable. In fact, it becomes honorable. I mean, how can we complain about the little bitty suffering that we endure when we think about all the, the massive suffering He endured for us? He endured the suffering of hell for us. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for us? So that we would never have to say that. Now, how can we complain about Somebody slandering us because we serve Him. About somebody undermining us because they don't like seeing Christ in us. Shouldn't we long instead? Shouldn't we long instead for them to see Christ in us? Especially in the way that we suffer. Suffering not the way people of the world do. People who are in their rebellion. Not, not suffering with bitterness and, and cherishing up every offense and remembering every word spoken to us. No, no, no. Suffering the way Jesus did. Praying that God would forgive those who persecute us. Walking into that suffering with meekness. Not, not plotting our revenge. Not cherishing up all of those offenses and thinking how we can get back at them. What we can say to them. No, 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 no. Loving them instead. Returning blessing for their curse the way Jesus did. Peter emphasizes the pattern of Jesus' suffering. He suffered and endured death in the flesh. In fact, the suffering that he endured is greater than anything we could possibly endure. Because the scourging of the Romans, the rejection of the Jews, the agony of the cross, which we can't even dare to imagine, was all compounded by the fact that in all of that, God was rejecting him because of our sin. And because of the fact that it was our sin, not his own. And yet having died in the flesh, he was made alive by the Spirit. Now there's some debate over that phrase, what exactly it means. Was Peter talking about Jesus' Spirit, his soul, that he was made alive in the soul? Well, no, of course not, because Jesus' soul never died. Was he merely referring to the spiritual realm? That he was made alive in the spiritual realm. Well, no, because he very soon came back to life in the physical realm as well. He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' death demonstrates to us that he suffered, he died, he endured the worst possible penalty that man could ever suffer in this world. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit he was given new life. Death was not the end for Jesus because the Spirit is sufficient to conquer death and so shall it be for us. Jesus promised in John chapter 6, He said, This is the will of the Father 
who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that no matter what they do to us in this world, we can face it without fear, without worrying, striving at all times to reflect Christ because we know that no matter what they do to us, God will not let us perish eternally. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us and with us will raise us up. He will raise us up immediately to God as soon as we die and He will raise us up renewed and perfected physically and spiritually on that last great day to live eternally before God. So what need have we to fear the suffering that we endure in this world? There is no need. But to what end? What's the purpose for His preserving us? All of that suffering that Christians endure whether at the hand of, their, of God's enemies or at the cause of their own sin or as a result of this world's brokenness, all of it, God is ordained to use, working in us and with us to do so. We need to remember that. And so the second point that we see here is that he encourages us through a Noahic example, the example of Noah. Now, verses 19 and 20 are part of the, the real difficulty of interpreting this passage. This is one of the, the truly difficult passages of the New Testament to interpret in its fine points. This section, verses 19 and 20, tell us that in some manner, Jesus went and he preached to some audience at some point. And that audience was those who were imprisoned who had disobeyed back in Noah's day. Now, questions abound. When and where did Jesus preach? Whom did he address? How does that relate to us? Well, there are essentially four interpretations with a lot of variation among them. Some say that this is telling us that Jesus went and preached to the souls of wicked men in hell. These were those who disobeyed during Noah's age. But now Jesus went and he offered them opportunity to repent, a second chance. That's option one. Option two is that Jesus went to limbo, to some realm of the dead that's not quite hell, where the souls of those who had looked forward to him were waiting, and he proclaimed their release through what he had accomplished. That's number two. Third option is that, this is talking about angels, that Jesus went and preached to the disobedient angels who had been active in the time of Noah, and he proclaimed his victory over them. That's option three. And option four is that Jesus was preaching to the people of Noah's age during Noah's age. Now, if we examine those four options, and by the way, among Bible scholars, there's a lot of fierce debate over this. But really, it, it's not that terrible hard. If we examine it carefully, option one is out. That Jesus preached to the souls of the wicked in hell and offered them a second chance. Well, Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, Clearly it is appointed for men to die once, and after that the judgment. There is no second chance. Our chance is here in the world. And Romans 1 shows us that everyone is without excuse, because the world itself shows us that we should serve God. So Jesus could not have, would not have, gone to hell to offer a second chance to those who had already rejected God. 
Likewise, option two, that Jesus preached to the righteous ones who remained in limbo, that suffers the distinct problem that the Bible nowhere talks of this realm of the dead that is not heaven or hell. Instead, it shows us that believers like Abraham were regarded by God as righteous as soon as they believed. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he immediately went to be with the Lord upon his death. So option two is out. How about option three? That, that Jesus went and proclaimed to the disobedient angels. That actually has some uh, decent argument in favor of it. After all, he's, he mentioned spirits, which works well when speaking of angels. It says that, that they were in prison, which kind of fits with 2 Peter 2 and Romans 20 and, and how Satan and his servants are now bound during this age. However, there are problems. For one, the word for disobeyed really speaks of a lack of faith, a rejection of faith, which works for people but not so much for angels. And, and the question arises, how did these spirits disobey uniquely in Noah's age? Truth be told, the case for that is pretty weak. That brings us back to the fourth interpretive option, which I think is very clearly correct. Peter is saying that Jesus went and preached to the people of Noah's generation through Noah. The people who watched Noah. Remember, this wasn't a small venture, this building of the ark. This was a matter of 125 or 120 years during which Noah built this ark. People saw that. People asked questions. And 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says that Noah himself was a preacher of righteousness. So while they were asking questions, Noah was giving reason for the hope that is within them and doubtless was suffering their scorn in the process. But Jesus, by means of the Spirit, was speaking through Noah. Just as He speaks through God's people today. Romans 10 1 Thessalonians 2, they say that when the word of God is rightly preached, it is not the word of men that you hear, but in truth it is the word of God. And that that word of God is what imparts faith in those who are elect. And so it was Christ by the Holy Spirit who was proclaiming the righteousness of God to them, who was calling them to repentance, who was waiting patiently that every one of them might have ample opportunity to turn in repentance and be saved, but they refused. They sealed their doom by rejecting the preaching of Christ through Noah. Now, why is that important for us? Well, folks, that is a great encouragement for you. Because you will endure suffering in this world. It might be great suffering or it might be comparatively small. But all who desire to live godly lives in Christ will endure persecution. And all who live in this sin-scarred world will endure struggles. But when you do suffer, remember Noah. Think on how the sins of those around him grieved this godly man. Think of how diligently he worked in faith. And how faithfully he spoke of Christ to those who asked for the reason for the hope within him. Think of how he was rejected by every last one of those who heard except for his three sons and their wives and his own wife. Despite that rejection, despite the evident failure of Noah's preaching, think on that. He had 120 years to talk to his neighbors. To tell them about what the Lord was going to do. To warn them of the judgment to come. From 
his perspective, it must have looked like a colossal failure. But, through Christ's preaching by means of Noah, that entire generation had no excuse. And Noah's own family was saved. They weren't like Lot's wife who paused to look back, who had attached themselves to the world. No, no. They walked willingly in faith onto that ark. They believed the promises of the Lord and also His coming judgment. He was able to see the salvation of His family and not only His family, but all of humanity after them. Not that all of humanity is saved, but all of humanity existed. Because Noah believed and because Noah held to that hope of which he testified. Who knows how God will use your suffering? Who He might draw near to Himself through the words that you speak. How many might be moved not only by your confession of faith, but by the life of faith that you live. Who might, or what might be the effect on your own family in the coming generations. Who knows what God will do with, how He will use your faithful endurance of suffering. You might never know it in this life. But remember Noah. And trust that God will use you. That God will speak through you. That God will employ your testimony, your witness, even as He did Noah. And be encouraged. Standing firm with the faith that Noah had. And trust that He will equip you with a baptismal conscience. That's the last thing we see here. Verse 21 speaks of an antitype. An antitype, which is actually a, that's, that's the word in Greek, antitupas. What is an antitype? A type is something, especially in the Old Testament, that points forward to something else, whether a person or an event or an image of some sort that points forward to what God is going to do. So the antitype is that thing toward which it pointed. In this case, it says baptism is the antitype. So the question is, what was the original type to which baptism corresponds? Is it the ark? Is it the water? Is it the whole event that's described in verses 19 and 20? Well, I believe it's all of the above. Grammatically, it can't be simply the ark. That doesn't work. It's the wrong gender of a a noun. Water works, but because it's a neuter noun, it also hints that it's speaking of the whole event. It's speaking of the whole description there. And I think that vagueness is intentional. Peter wants us to consider how the water points forward to baptism, but he wants us to also see that that water is a part for the whole of the salvation that Noah and his family experienced. Consider then that type, that symbol that God sets before us. The whole world was filled at this time with rebellion. Genesis 6 verse 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's mankind. And it grieved the Lord. Grieved him so much that he resolved to destroy the race that had by its sin destroyed his image. However, he resolved to spare those who trusted in him, namely Noah, 
and those who would join Noah in seeking God's mercy. So God withheld his judgment. He showed patience for a time, decreeing a, a brief stay of execution. During that stay of execution, he instructed Noah to build an ark, a place of refuge. And he called Noah, as he was doing that, to preach, to declare God's righteousness and the judgment that must soon fall, to explain the hope that was in him, hope of the mercy of God, and to call others to join him in trusting in the mercy of God. Then in due time, God sent the waters of judgment. Noah and his family, as they entered the ark by faith, God shut them up within that ark of refuge. And the rest of the world, he submerged. He submerged for their disobedient rebellion under the waters of judgment. And so eight were delivered. Eight through the waters of of judgment. They were delivered from the penalty for their own sin and from the wickedness of the world which was being destroyed. And amazingly, those waters of judgment became their means of deliverance. Even as the Lord used that, that water to manifest His wrath against the world, that same water buoyed up the shelter of the ark and preserved and protected the people who trusted in Him. And this is what corresponds to baptism. The proclamation of our hope in God's mercy in the midst of His patience. The provision of shelter from the wrath of God about to fall. And the outpouring of God's righteous wrath which destroys those who disobey. Even as it saves, as it delivers those who trust. Do you not see how beautifully our baptism is there portrayed? How does baptism save us? I mean, what Peter says here... Is, is pretty provocative, isn't it? An antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Baptism saves us? Well, not in its physical application, as though the water itself physically washed away our sin. It's, that's not how it works. No, baptism saves us, he says, as the answer of a good conscience. See, this is the, the powerful lesson of Noah's deliverance amidst the water. The water of the flood did not save Noah automatically just by encountering them. No, the water could only save him as he encountered those waters by faith in God's mercy. Faith that led Noah to believe God's warning about the coming judgment. Faith that led him to obey his instruction to build the ark. Faith that enabled Noah to preach to the people who deeply loved sin and to endure the scorn and mockery that surely followed. It was faith that led Noah to build and to supply and to enter the massive shelter that was the ark. And that faith is what made all the difference. Noah believed the promise of the Lord. He trusted God to perfectly provide and because he did that water that manifested God's judgment lifted him up above that judgment and likewise baptism which manifests our and which is received by our good conscience baptism is a physical display of God's saving promises it shows that that God will wipe away and will forgive all the sins we've committed it shows that we will be reconciled to the God whom we've offended. We will be given life through the application of the Holy Spirit which descends on us like that water. It's the promise of life, of new life, of eternal life. 
That promise is symbolized by the sacrament and it is received by us through faith. Didn't we hear that in Hebrews 11? Noah prepared an ark for the saving of his family by faith. We heard a little bit ago from 1 Corinthians 1 that, that we were alienated, enemies in our mind by wicked works, but he has reconciled us through the body of Christ's flesh through death to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight if you continue in the faith. If we have faith in Christ, then our conscience is clear. We can stand blameless before God, clothed with the holiness of Christ, because that's His promise. By our faith, by our confession of Christ, we enter the ark of Christ. He endures all of the wrath of God, all that those waters symbolize. And because we are in Him, just as Noah was buoyed up above that judgment by the ark, we are buoyed up above that judgment by Christ. And so our deliverance through the Savior who endured God's judgment, our deliverance is assured. And folks, that's the confidence that equips us to endure the suffering of this world. Because that suffering can bring us pretty low. That suffering can just utterly destroy our will. It can, it can leave us without hope. But when we remember how Christ endured that suffering for us, how He endured the judgment so we didn't have to, and how He, just as, just as the ark let Noah and his family out on a world that was renewed, a world that was ready to be repopulated and resubdued, so Christ has promised that He has obtained the victory. He has delivered us from our sin and from all the cost of the suffering. And He very soon will deliver us forth into a world that is renewed and restored and has no stain of sin in it so that we can conquer it, so that we can exercise God's rule over it, so that we can demonstrate His image without sin, without failure, without fault, and without suffering. That time's coming. That time is coming. And until then, we are called to stand firm on the basis of God's promises and on the confidence of our faith. And if we do, then brothers and sisters, God will bring us through. We will see those floodwaters res uh, re reside or uh, subside. And we will know the fullness of the victory Christ has earned for us. God empowers us to rightly respond to our suffering. May He enable us to do so by faith. And may He strengthen us each day to receive whatever He sends with gratitude and with joy. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we confess that it is hard for us. We, we see the, the rebellion of the people around us and we're tempted to long for it. We're tempted to long for it, not because we think it's right, but because we want to fit in. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to stand out. But Lord, you've called us to something greater. That we might stand out, not just before men, but before you. As we rest in Christ and share in his sufferings. Lord, we ask, therefore, that you would give us the confidence and the hope and the joy that we need. That would allow us to stand firm and to stand out in the face of this world. Father, we pray that you would 
that you would equip us as only you are able. That you would turn us to Christ daily, reminding us of how He has fulfilled for us the salvation that we need and how He has given us every reason to suffer with gratitude that, we can, that we're counted worthy of reflecting His suffering in our own life. Lord, we pray that You would remind us of, of the example of Noah, that we might proclaim Christ, proclaim our hope in the midst of suffering, even as He did, knowing that You will use our suffering as You used that of Noah. And Lord, give us the confidence we need as we remember the victory Christ has obtained for us and the new life that we have in Him. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen.